We are I. Recording in progress. I just, I just really feel like they still could use a way better voice for that. But um, welcome. Yeah. I've actually been getting a ton of feedback from our last couple of podcasts that we done, and I, I know I usually air them when I first, when we first record them. Um, but I actually mm-hmm. had this master plan of these uh, twelve podcasts that I was going to do, and I wanted to do them all like each day in this series because they all tied together in a certain way. But a few of them got canceled, um, and then it kind of oh. just snowballed in and then that's why I aired all of them like in a little bit of a stretch so I apologize for Uh not um airing them when we recorded the last time and why they were so bunched up about a week ago um I just kind of released them back to back in those couple days that's okay all right um acupuncture this is going to be the burning subject of the day uh how I got really rabbit holed into this and I actually found it ironic well actually not really now with all of our conversations but um it's so popular now. So many people are starting mm-hmm. to investigate acupuncture, even from like a therapeutic side or more as like, I want to administer acupuncture. It seems like acupuncture mm-hmm. is what almost is like the overarching fishnet that pulls people into like, you know, Eastern methodology or Eastern mm-hmm. modalities and everything kind of snowballs from there. But it seems like it's the one that yeah. really snares people in. Um, like, why? Yeah, because you made a reference in your book that has ever growing popularity too. And your first book is how many years old now? So like you would presume right. it's even more amplified now. And you know, COVID's probably amplified that even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did, what did so you, I yeah. I think that there are a combination of factors. Uh, one is that doctors are recommending it more hmm. to their patients. Another is that insurance companies are covering it more in more states. And another is that people are getting to the point with pain conditions, particularly with back pain, that um, they are willing to try it. And word of mouth is also helpful. So they'll have a neighbor that has suggested it and maybe along the way over the years, they've heard from different friends or family members, you know, oh, have you tried acupuncture? And so it kind of, that seed's been getting planted from many different sources. And I think that that's part of the reason for its, its um, rise in popularity right now. See, and the thing, when I was young, I first tried acupuncture when I was probably 18 or 19. And I feel like at that point in time, I was like the typical stereotype that I went in and I didn't really feel any substantial air quotes difference. Um, But again, I think I was too young for too uneducated about the process and looking at it more like this Tylenol effect or this Advil effect where I'm going to like pop this pill and I'm going to feel something like as a result or wanting the impact to be greater. Um, is acupuncture more of like a one-time treatment or is it something that we do that's preventative, something that we do that's therapeutic, something that we should just do regularly because there's always going to be some pathway that's a little bit hindered or blocked? Really, it's all of the above. 
So um, it, it doesn't hurt if you don't have a pressing acute complaint to have an acupuncture treatment because the acupuncture practitioner is trained to assess your constitutional presentation and to bring into balance anything that they see that um, could be brought into better balance. Um, and then there are, I mean, that's one end of the spectrum. And then the other end is people have, they come in with an acute condition, uh, acute neck pain, or they're trying to avoid surgery. And it may be that with one session that that um, complaint seemingly goes away. Mm -hmm. So um, I have had that happen on a couple of occasions where people have come in with like really serious stuff, like at times that I don't think I'm going to be able to make that much of a difference. And in one treatment, it's gone. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so then, yeah, go ahead. Where are traditional um, acupuncturists or like from a traditional modality methodology mindset, um, how do you perceive dry needling like besides they say it's kind of like the hybrid between you know like deep tissue massage you know acupressure acupuncture Mm. um like what is your thoughts and impressions on dry needling well if the acu if an acupuncturist is doing it um i don't see any problem with it because they're extremely well trained in how to needle and manipulate a needle and in feeling the different tissue types and in feeling how far they should be going and, and what they should be doing with the needle. Um, someone who's taken you know, a couple weekends of courses just because they work with bodily tissue may not have that sensitivity with the needle. And dry needling is done usually with uh, thicker needles too. So to not have that sensitivity is not ideal because you can oftentimes feel uh, the needle hit a boundary and you don't want to go through it, whether mm-hmm. it's a connective tissue or whatever, you don't, you don't go any further. And if you don't have that skill properly honed, it's, it can be a problem. So there's not an overabundance of issues with, um, with puncturing an organ, but it does happen with dry needling. Um, usually because it's a physical therapist or someone else, um, medical practitioner still, but not an acupuncturist that's performing it. And those are usually the situations where like a pneumothorax would occur. Whereas if an acupuncturist is doing it, chances are even lower that something like that would happen. Um, And there's a form of acupuncture called trigger point needling. And that's very similar to to dry needling. Um, And that's learned by acupuncturists now would they use a a thicker needle just because it you know like they're worried about it breaking or like what would be the purpose of them using a thicker needle to be able to because they're they're trying to get into really um locked up areas of tissue and if you use a needle that's really really thin it's just going to bend it's not even going to penetrate the tissue Hmm. so you need to use a a thicker gauge needle in order to get into that dense locked up uh, muscle tissue. And then you're trying to get into like the neuromuscular junction and make the muscle fire. So it starts to vesiculate and then it can release. So I guess this would be like a great time to be able to explain like what happens during that process. Like 
Like, what are they doing? What are they hoping to achieve? What do they hope to feel? Like, what's the relief that people are going to get? Like, what happens during that whole process of dry needling? With dry needling? Um, just what I said. So, like, if you think about a tight muscle, that it, it's, it's, like, completely tight. And when something is closed, it doesn't allow for the free circulation of fluids and gases into and out of the tissue. Enough gets in and out so that it's not like gonna die or atrophy or something, but, um, but it's still not optimal. And it oftentimes will result in a pain condition or a um, limited mobility condition. So by getting into that neuromuscular junction, what you're trying to do is kind of get into the, um, the nucleus of that tension and stimulate it so that it actually will release. And so the muscle might fire and twitch and, um, and then it can, it's like giving the muscle the message to release so that it eases the tension, so that it increases circulation to the area and it increases mobility. Now, would this happen at, for, like from like an injury or just like repetitive stress, which I guess is like a, sure. know, like a minor injury, you know, like athletic endeavors. Um, and is there a difference between this and muscle fiber fusion? Um, like what, it, what would cause, you know, um, somebody to have to go in and get dry needling done? It can be, you know, an injury. It can be just their gait is off because they've had bunions their whole life or they have a knee problem and it's messing up their hip or um, they're at the computer all day and they've got lots of locked up muscles in their back or their neck. So it can happen from, you know, just kind of chronic holding patterns um, and sometimes when our gait is off, when our stance or our posture is off for whatever reason, certain muscles that should be more relaxed are more engaged and others that should be engaged are not doing their job because they're not strong enough. So there's a lot of imbalance musculoskeletally that can happen over one's lifetime and that can result in, in those tight muscles. How bad is it nowadays with like, how we just don't have a lot of variety to our days. Like most people are going to sit down and have breakfast and sit in their car and sit to drive to work and then sit in their desk all day, sit in the car to drive home, to sit and have supper and then to sit and watch TV. Like, like how mm -hmm. bad is that really for our body's physiology? Cause like, we're not obviously meant to, to do what we do now. There's a lot more natural organic movement to our day. Like, do we see more of these problems you know, now, because we are so locked into these fixed positions all the time, um, yeah. you know, because like, in my mind, like, I look at like, you know, obviously, like the movement causes its own stress, you know, like, and also its mm -hmm. own potential injury to the tissue, like on the body. But um, I also know that through movement, you can release a lot of, you know, like that muscle fusion, muscle fiber fusion tension in the body, yeah. because you've added this extra movement. So it's, it's movement is almost therapeutic and damaging at the same time, but like lethargic, repetitive, um, you know, say sitting, for example, instead of like at a desk all day, you know, like there's no therapeutic side to that. Like, it's just in my mind, looking at more of like a, a chronic constant damage. Uh, would you agree with that? Or, you know, is there, is there a benefit, you know, to carrying a singular position for the majority of the day? I don't see any benefit at all. 
Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, even if you're like standing, I've seen these these yogis in India that are uh, these uh, guys up in, in they're they're like standing in tree pose for you know three months, and then their body gets locked in that position. You know, mm-hmm. it's that's what happens if you don't move it solidifies. So sitting especially is, I mean, years ago, before everyone is at computers as much as they are now, even the fact that we sit on a toilet instead of squatting was considered detrimental to our bodies, not to our, uh, to our um, ease of elimination, but also just in general, it's not like the whole squatting position when you go to the bathroom is ideal um and not only that but squatting in general sitting in chairs like even before we like i said before we were at computers all day just that act of sitting it tightens up like the psoas and those muscles in the hips that um are so flexible and the people who grow up in cultures that don't sit in a chair all the time but now it's also coming to light that sitting also inhibits the um, quality of the breath. And the quality of the breath is intimately tied to one's not only physical well being, but mental and emotional well being. And so there's a lot more fast, shallow breathing when you're sitting at a computer all day. Um, and then of course you have the hunching forward and then you have all the eye issues. Um, and like in Chinese medicine theory, overusing the eyes depletes the liver chi. So the liver is responsible for helping us feel like we can go with the flow on a mental, emotional level, not feeling stuck, not getting frustrated or overly irritated with things or people. Um, So by using the eyes too much, it's actually um, harmful to the liver energy. And then it can actually translate if if the liver energy does begin to get disturbed into dream disturbed sleep or into insomnia period, waking up at 3 a.m., for example, and not being able to fall back asleep um, right away. So, you know, you can see how all of these things are tied together. And lifestyle recommendations are primary when it comes to rebalancing the physical tissue and the physiology, but they're oftentimes the hardest things to do because we're so attached to what we're doing and, and how we are used to doing it. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. A really interesting thing that I thought of there is that most people are going to be sitting in front of the screen all day. And I'm going to overgeneralize here, but you know, like most people sitting in front of the screen all day are probably going to want to come home at the end of the day and have, you know, like a drink or two, you know, glass mm-hmm. wine, you know, like they may or may not have had a drink with lunch, you know, like a business lunch or go and grab some lunch with colleagues. And, you know, obviously we know the alcohol with the effects on like the liver. It seems like there's this our lifestyles unintentionally created this great snowball effect that's really detrimental mm-hmm. to our liver, which we also see people who are typically, you know, in an office job or like drinking more irritable, you know, don't sleep as well, you know, disrupted sleep, 
you know, insomnia, like you, you really see and sort of build all these correlations. And I know that you and I talk about this all the time, that if we're, if we're willing to stop and look and listen and see, we can see that, you know, how all these things are interconnected, like in our lives. And we have this great foundation of information that's been around for thousands of years. And we're just slowly starting to wake up to and be like, oh, there is a lot of correlation between all these events and like how we live our lives now. Um, what are like some of the things that people can do if they have to sit in front of a computer, even if they don't want to, and they're not coming home and having these couple of drinks, what are some of the things that people can do in that environment to help improve the energy that she in their liver? So there's all there. You could stand, you know, some people have a standing desk that's adjustable. They consider they can stand, but you know, one thing that I find really interesting is people who smoke are given the opportunity to go out and take multiple smoke breaks a day. Oh, it don't even get me right? started. Yeah. And then there are people who don't smoke who aren't doing that. So take a non-smoking break. <laughs> That's one thing you could do. Like actually go outside, take a few breaths, roll your shoulders around, you know, roll, move from side to side, just, do a little bit of movement and take some really deep breaths, like five or six deep breaths, and then go back inside and reset yourself. That's the simplest thing I think anybody can do, because if you're allowed to do it, if you're going to go out and smoke a butt, then you should be able to also do it. Even if you're not just don't go to the smoking area to take those deep breaths. Yeah. See, and I actually find it really, and I know that this is kind of changes recently, but I don't know what it's like in the United States, but in Canada, we actually build like little houses and these like little segregated areas for people to smoke because you're not allowed to smoke within a certain, you know, distance of doors. And, right. you know, but like, but now like companies have built these smoking areas because they have to accommodate smokers, you know, mm -hmm. but on the flip side is there's also a lot of companies who aren't building any therapeutic space for people who just want to go outside and have just a, even a really nice visual representation or, you know, like mm -hmm. a room inside the building itself that's just nice and serene and peaceful. Like there's not right. always the equivalent, you know, to people who want to be healthy, but there's always the equivalent to people who want to be unhealthy because they have to accommodate them if they happen to be there, which I just find these are the parts of our culture. But that think about them. this. Think about this. What are people doing that are smoking? Well, outside of killing themselves and being unhealthy. Um, I They're don't know. taking massively deep breaths. Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess so. And I think that's part of the reason why people get uh, so hooked on it because there are a lot of people that aren't really addicted to the nicotine. It's more that it's the mental and emotional shift they get from those deep breaths that they're taking. Mm -hmm. Because when you breathe deep, you're massaging the vagus nerve with your diaphragm. And that's turning on your rest and digest, your parasympathetic nervous system. It's overriding your nervousness or your anxiousness or your um, unsettledness. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Wow, so, so interesting. Ev eh? Everybody I would have should be thought. able to do that. Yeah, yeah. Yep, I think that's what it is. Yeah, so it's almost like you have a, a double nootropic effect happening because nicotine is very nootropic. And then you have like mm -hmm. these bigger, deeper breaths that you're taking, which are also very nootropic. Like you can see 
how there's this completely other level of addiction that, you know, may be very present, like what you just highlighted, where like, you're getting this double hit of well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And that in and of itself is going to like free up your muscles. Like who really, if, if they're not in, if they're not aware of how good it feels to take a few deep breaths, or they're not even able to take deep breaths well, because they're so like bound up, they're tense, they're anxious, whatever it is, who's going to go outside and go, And how many people smoke because it's relaxing? That's yeah. something you hear all the time. That's like, I just need a cigarette to be able to relax myself. We're doing a That's great right. job of selling smoking here right now. We're doing a great job of selling deep breathing. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But I mean, that's, that's really something to consider. And that, you know, maybe we should be taught at a younger age, take those deep breaths. Yeah, and without I think any like, yeah, and without any acute reason to right, without like being almost in a panic attack, but just, you know, in school. Here, let's take our few deep breaths in between every class before we even get off up from the desk and go out in the hall and change rooms. Let's take a few deep breaths. See, and you know, I find school to be really interesting, especially now that, you know, like my oldest typically has, um, you know, about four or five teachers that they're exposed to. And, you know, same with my like younger kids, you know, they're just so young. They typically just are in a one teacher scenario still. Right. Um, But it's amazing. Like the difference between the teachers who want to be a little bit more progressive, like the ones that are like, yeah, bring a snack into, into the classroom and eat it. Just be respectful when you're eating it. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, you might be in grade three or four, but I trust that you know that you can eat this, this snack at your desk respectfully because they know what it's like when children are sitting there and all they are is hungry and irritable. Or, you know, mm-hmm. like coming into class and saying like, okay, let's do some breath work before we get into class. Or like at the end of, um, you know, like a class saying like, let's just do some, some quick meditation. I'll turn out all the lights. And we'll close our eyes and, you know, and do some visualization. Like there's a lot of teachers like that, but I also hear like other teachers that like completely still discredit it. And they're both being held in the same system. And you have all these children that are kind of like, well, what does this mean? When I have one mm-hmm. teacher at once and another teacher is like, oh, I can't believe Mr. So-and-so does that. Or, you know, like all those little passive aggressive jabs that these kids, they pick up on, on both sides of it. But I agree with you. Like I see it because like, you know, my oldest, they, she gets right into it because she also sees that we do things like that at home. And now mm-hmm. she goes out into like her version of the real world. And it's like, oh, this isn't just like that crazy stuff that we do at home. Like this is stuff that like a lot of other people are doing too. So it actually makes it easier to parent your child mm-hmm. in a way that's going to be very nurturing to their mind, body, energy, and soul. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Um, segue that into energy channels into the body or energy channels in the body. Okay. What are they? What's going on? What's an energy channel in the body? So first of all, we probably don't have the equipment to actually measure what is the, we don't have the equipment to measure the entirety of what's meant by an energy channel from the ancient texts, just like we don't yet have the equipment to measure all the viruses in the body. So um, it's not like some 
woo woo thing to say energy channel because we actually just don't have the technology to perceive it right now. But um, human perception allows for an understanding of how things work and what's happening inside the body and the mind. Um, and so that's where people were able to come up with this concept of energy channels. And so what are they? Well, from a Western medicine standpoint, the closest thing we have that's been measured, two things. One is the, um, the electromagnetic pathways that run through the connective tissue correspond exactly to what the energy pathways are in Chinese medicine. Um, another is um, what we were talking about before, this uh, Bognian channel theory that a Korean doctor came up with. And that's about microtubules that run through the body that correspond to the energy meridians as well. Channel and meridian we can use interchangeably for the most part. So um, from more of a classical explanation, the energy channels or meridians are pathways for the flow of chi through the body. And chi is vitality, it's information, it's, a, it's an energy or a force, and it has a definite um, route that it travels through the body and, and connects the mind and the body. And, um, and that is not completely measurable. And so what can that be? That can be partially the electromagnetic pathways in the connective tissue. It can be partially these microtubules that this Korean scientist found. It can be um, pathways that emanate or um, allow for uh, different types of radiation to move through the body. It can be, I think chi is probably the amalgamation of many different factors that contribute to one's vitality and quality of being. So um, when we say energy pathways, we're talking about pathways that allow for a substance and or a force that may be made up of several, several substances and forces that we, could not, we cannot live without. And that is the source for um, whenever we feel an ache or a pain or a disease process starts to manifest, the, the chi movement is the source for the onset of those things. So from a Chinese medicine standpoint, if there's a smooth flow of chi through the system, there cannot be any imbalance. So what does that mean? There are certain cheese that, uh, not cheese, but chi, QI, <laughs> um, that flow in certain directions. So like the stomach chi flows down, it's not supposed to go up, mm. things like that. So um, if they're flowing in a way that is not meant to happen, then that's when an illness or an imbalance can arise. If there's a blockage in the flow to an organ or a tissue, then that's when an imbalance can arise. So there are different pathologies behind what happens with the chi movement 
and what it means inside the body and how the symptoms will manifest. Um, but they're pretty much the foundation for health or for disease, those energy pathways and how well the chi is able to flow through them. And the chi can also like pull, it can pull fluids with it because it's, it's considered uh, more young. So it's more active. And so fluids will stagnate if they're not able to move. And of course, like with circulatory system, we think about the heart pumping the blood, but there's some, there is some um, research to show that there are other things that help to, the blood to move. And one of those things may be the chi. From a Chinese medicine standpoint, the blood follows the chi. Mm -hmm. So any kind of blood stagnation issue or an issue with circulation immediately indicates that there's a, an issue with the chi flow. Mm -hmm. Because if the, chi if the blood follows the chi, then the chi must not be pulling it in the right direction. Oh yeah. If there's oh, I... an issue, you see? So, yeah. and all the fluids are tied to the chi. So what happens if there's a break in this system? And this is something that we discussed before um, we started recording is that say, for example, these microtubules that this uh, Korean doctor scientist found, or if you're looking at from like a traditional either, you know, um, you know, Ayurvedic standpoint or a TCM, if there's a break, if we have an organ transplant, if we get a laceration, um, you know, like a puncture, if there's a disruption, what happens then? Like if, if the chi is supposed to flow in a very much directional state, but there's a, an interruption that's going to last for a significant period of time, call that like a week or a month, you know, or say we break our leg, you know, like where there's this massive disruption, does that throw the whole system off balance? Like, is there a way to reroute things? So temporarily, like you can have this properly functioning chi, or is it something you have to micromanage until the system kind of gets back up online and functioning properly? I would say it depends on the degree of the injury or ailment. Let's call it an organ transplant. Say I needed to get a kidney transplant, you know, uh, both kidneys failed, which, you know, which was like my scenario. Say if I had to actually get a kidney transplant, you have these two new kidneys. It's already a very hostile environment, you know, for your body, for these new kidneys. We don't know if they're going to take. Why, when our body, if it chooses to accept these kidneys, does that chi system, do we know anything about how, it attaches to this new organ or these new organs in a undisrupted state. Cause you would think like there might be scar tissue now there, you know, like, like, like how, if you have this, these uh, microtubules, like this North Korean doctor scientist said, do they reconnect? Like how does our chi connect to something that becomes very foreign in our body that was arguably not really anticipated you know, when there was a lot of research done, you know, say 2000, 3000, 4000 years ago, like, what do we know about that in regards to chi flow? So my understanding of it is that the energetic blueprint comes into being in the womb before the tissues form. Mm. And it is in large part responsible for the poles and the planes in the body and for cellular differentiation for certain cells to know what part it needs to become and where it needs to go. And so when there's any kind of like a transplant, 
the energetic blueprint is still there. So the channels may become disrupted because that is a huge trauma to the system. But it doesn't mean that they can't then like reroute themselves or circulate through the new tissue or new organ. It's just that just like any of the other tissues in the body, it needs time to heal. See, and, like and this so is- a huge part of a huge part of Chinese medicine is to keep the chi and the blood moving because one of the worst things that can happen is that there's stagnation that arises in the presence of that. So you want to keep the smooth flow of chi and blood. And that's oftentimes like for injuries, why ice isn't recommended from an Eastern standpoint, because that inhibits the flow of chi and blood. Interesting. Um, this is to me why I'm, I'm convinced I'm going to convince you to write a book about mycelium and mushrooms because, you know, that, <laughs> but, but this is the thing that we know about mycelium though, but how it's this network of information, you know, very hair, like fine structures and strands, you know, like, and, you know, they very massively multiply, they know they're very adaptive, you know, it's all about energy, it's all about flow, you know, it's all about harmony, you know, and it's, it, and it carries and it adapts and it adjusts. And as you explain everything to do with like chi flow and energy systems in our body, like, there's almost an exact correlation to how some of these, you know, very, you know, much leading well-respected scientists in the mycelium field is exactly how they explain what mycelium's doing, you know, to the network of, you know, mother earth and, you know, all the biological mass that's on the earth. And when you're explaining it, because I've seen, you know, a lot of this information, you know, like in the visual representations of it, it's like, I can almost see now in my mind about, well, if there is that damage, how there could be this network, well, like that she and these pathways they start to regrow and they, you know, they revive the system because they just accept they, they come into play and they, you know, then surround, mm-hmm. you know, like that new Canadian and say like, you know, this is us now, you know, and like, let's adapt to this. And they kind of shift resources to like this accepting and how can we nurture this, you know, new kidney and bring it, you know, back online and, you know, and be a part of this, you know, homeostasis in the body, you know, where it's just like it, I just get so fascinated you know, about all these direct correlations between, you know, energy flow and energy transfer and how we, well, maybe not we, but how a lot of people feel, especially in Western culture, that we are such an externality outside of this system. But we have mm-hmm. thousands of references to how we are very much a part of this system and how I almost look at biological energy and the energy of our earth being like the tides how there's like this very natural flow that's seemingly uninterrupted and like that's what we're trying to achieve in our body that's what nature's trying to achieve all the time and us as human beings we kind of stand in the middle of that process and feel like that we are above this system and we can operate outside of it and why a lot of these top researchers you know in the you know fungi field saying like the more we disrupt this natural rhythm, this flow, this, you know, a myceliated network is almost like our demise. 
which would be the same thing as if we had this massive disruption to the flow and the energy in our chi to our body that would eventually mm-hmm. lead to our demise. Like there's all these mm-hmm. great direct correlations between the two. Um, when I talk like this, do you think I'm just crazy sitting on the other end of this screen right now? Or like, no, no, it- not at all. No. Cause I think everything's interrelated and, um, and it's making me think about Wi-Fi and cellular um, and power lines and things like that. Like some people can really physically feel the influence of those things on them. And um, they would be considered forms of chi and maybe even evil chi in a sense, um, because they may have a negative effect on the system and it, it may be disrupting those natural waves or rhythms that you're talking about. And since we know that there's different places in on this planet that people seek out that are greater energy fields and sources, if we mm-hmm. look, if we take a big giant step back, would these almost be like the acupuncture points on our body? Maybe they're kind of like the acupuncture points of our planet because they hold these Mm -hmm. great energy fields and they may be like this junction you know to Mm -hmm. like the sub energy fields around like our planet um what do you think of that i'm i'm just my mind's Mm -hmm. reeling so hard right now about like all these representations that like we see which is very Mm -hmm. much like the neural pathways in our brain you know like we you know we know exactly how our brain is mapped out very much like a mycelial network, you know, very much like, you know, like the chi centers in our body, energy flow in our body, like they, they all look and represent um, and map very much the same way. Um, what happens when we are in an energy center on our planet? Like what happens to our body? Like why do people even seek those environments out? Because they can feel the difference in the charge. It makes them feel like they have more vitality because they're, they're connected to a greater presence of chi in that area do we know what's going on in those areas like is there anything like soon is there like volcanic activity like is you know sometimes and like even here where i live in the saratoga spa state park it's got one of the highest lithium contents in the air of any other place in the continental u.s so when you're there not just the presence of the trees and of the running water and the ions from that, but there's the presence of that lithium. It it definitely has a calming influence. So it can be a combination of things like that, that are creating the feeling that people have. It's like being by the ocean and having, you know, the ionic charge from the waves or waterfall, like those pictures you posted recently, Mm -hmm. um, that it just, it has, an unmistakable feel to it um, that causes you to feel a certain way that's desirable. Is this the reason why that people are drawn to the power of water outside of it just being nurtured? Like we need water to survive because like I, there's, well, a few things that I notice when I'm in, in the back country is that when you're walking along and the wind starts to rustle the trees and it sounds like water, you're almost like, you know, like there's an innate sense inside mm. you that's just like, I'm going there. It's like, mm-hmm. you, you can't deny it. And it happens to everybody. Like 
you go hiking with anybody and anybody when they hear that it's like oh it sounds like we're coming up to water or it's like was that a rustling in the trees or is there water nearby like there's there's always this thing that like pulls us to water to gravitate towards it and like yes there's nice being nice thing about being a, a like a little calm stream or this nice calm lake but everybody loves a waterfall it's hard to get away from a waterfall there's something about being in a waterfall or close to a waterfall there's something about feeling that power of water going to see a, a dam or you know like they're just like the the magnitude and the force of water it seems like people are drawn to is there something that we connect to inside of us that would draw us to an environment like that i yeah i think it's the chi flow because and the, those natural rhythms that flow through the body because i think um well from a Chinese medicine standpoint, chi flows through the body and, and water flow is used as a metaphor for how the chi flows and at what part of the body the chi is gonna flow more like a stream or more like a river. Um, and so I think that there's an inherent resonance when you're by especially running water that naturally resonates with the chi flow within you and helps to regulate it mm -hmm. helps to stimulate the flow where it may be stuck and um and then you know we may be wired genetically due to evolution to gravitate toward water as well um, and then there is the rhythmic movement of waves at the at the seashore that has a resonance with the with certain tides inside the body. So I think that, yeah, there's a resonance there that we know if we attune to, we'll be healthier because of it. So an example I always use with people when it comes to dehydration, it, you know, it, knowing that so much of our tissue, our organs, and especially our brain are made up of the majority of water. When I say to people, why, you can't think properly when you're dehydrated. You know, one of the main easiest questions I'm like, okay, well, if you're standing in your bathroom and you know, like you have the sink full of water and you have your hair dryer in your hand and you're blow drying your hair, you're not going to get electrocuted, you know? And then you have, it's like, well, some of that water spills out of the sink and ends up on the floor. So you have maybe a big toe, you're still blow drying your hair, you know, it's fine. You know, and then all of a sudden, like the pelvic comes on your feet, you're still okay, you don't feel anything, but you plunge that hair dryer into the water and you know you're going to get zapped. You know, so like when I'm saying to people is that, you know, the more dehydrated you get, like how do you expect this electronic or this electricity to exchange? And especially in your brain, like this is why, you know, like you're slowing that process down. Like why not hydrate your body so all these systems can function so much better? It, is the chi dependent on being hydrated too, or does dehydration mm -hmm. affect the chi flow in the body? Um, I, I would say that chronic dehydration would definitely affect the chi flow in the body and it, because it would increase the presence of vata or dryness in the system. And that has an effect on the mind and the body. That's not desirable. Do we know why all these things are like electric, they're electricity? Like, and I, we talked about this before too, and I don't even know what another option potentially could be, but it just seems interesting to me that everything is like a, an electrically charged flow or, 
like mm-hmm. you, like what what's your thought on that you know like like I said I know we kind of dabbled into this at the beginning and I apologize if I throw it under the bus with this no, but it's okay it is it seems to me like you know like yes I'm a firm believer in that our our world is based around like an energy flow but to know that it's electric it's actually has an electric charge is very interesting to me like do we know why mm. I don't know yeah, I don't you know, know if we know why. Yeah, it's one of those things. I guess it, it's always like the curiosity inside of my mind of just being like, like why you know. And I guess I look at this from the example too. It's like water's not always being accessible to us as human beings. Like you know, maybe a little bit you know before, like you know, nobody really knows what it would have been like maybe ten thousand or hundred thousand years ago. And we, I know, we've always congregated around food and water and shelter and places like this. But I would feel like dehydration has always been very much a part of our lives because there might have been months and years that have gone by in drought-like conditions and water is so essential to our body. But we also rely on our body functioning very well, you know, by having water, even through simple thought or, you know, through chi transfer or function of, of our body. It just seems like that we should have adapted to a system that would have worked way better during dehydrated states but it never, it never did. Or, you know, maybe that's the reason why maybe the energy flows still, if it's electrically charged, you know, with just a tiny minute, a little bit of, you know, water, if we are in a very dehydrated, dehydrated state versus anything else. I know I got to get like in these like rambling says this is how my mind thinks almost some of the worst parts of these podcasts sometimes, because people get these little snippets, of what goes on inside of my head. sometimes. <laughs> this is why it's like living in here all the time. But, um, why do we feel, or what's the research behind how, um, like the chi flow, like this system, like it doesn't exactly mirror the circulatory system, the nervous system, or the lymphatic system, but it parallels it very close. Um, why are we trying to say that it should be the circulatory system or the nervous system or the lymphatic system versus just looking at it as something completely different. It's like, why do we draw the reference? Like it should be one of these, but then, oh, wait, it's actually not. Instead of just treating it like it's its own system. Well, I think part of the reason is because we don't actually, because we think we know everything that mm-hmm. there is to know. So it must correlate to what we know already. What is, what's a tool you would kind of talk about before, like having, not having the proper technology to be able to like mm-hmm. map something out like this. Yeah. Like, like what does that technology even look like? Is it, is it a scan? Is it like an x-ray? Or is it just, we don't have any idea. Is there anybody working towards anything to be able to develop? I'm sure the they are. I'm sure they are. Yeah. But we don't have it yet. I mean, we look, we only just discovered that there's an interstitium in the body because for really thousands of years, people have been doing dissections on dead bodies mm-hmm. and there needed to be, you know, for some reason they didn't figure it out in surgeries. I don't know how they figure it out, but they finally figured out in the last couple of years that there is this circulatory thing happening with the exchange of fluids throughout the connective tissue and that it's an entire system that runs through the body. Um, how did, how did they just figure that out? I mean, and that's something that's been talked about in Chinese and, and Ayurvedic medicine for, you know, it's in the classics from thousands of 
hundreds or thousands of years ago. So I think that because we don't have the technology, because we think, you know, we know everything right now, um, that these teachings from Eastern medicine have been poo-pooed or thought of as woo-woo or whatever, when really they're an indication that there's more that we should be looking at scientifically and medically in our, in our modern times in order to understand those. So stop trying to put everything in a box when the box is actually totally incomplete. I mean, we don't even know all the hormones in the body yet. We don't know all the viruses and, and everything in the gut or in the body and how they interact. We don't know why the skin interacts directly with the, with the gut. I mean, the, we just don't know all that stuff. We don't know it. It's very interesting because if you take seriously the teachings from Eastern medicine and self-cultivation practices, the explanation, if you want to, if you want to um, look at it as a metaphor for how things work until we get the scientific explanation for it, that may be the best route to go because the explanation for how everything communicates with each other in the body and the relationships between the organs and how they communicate with each other is all there. It's all See, there. Yeah. And this is all almost like what worries me about the the days and times that we're in now, like, I feel when a lot of these teachings were first being accumulated, like I said, thousands of years ago, we may have had this great understanding of the body and the environment, but there's almost this element of some things that might be missing, or maybe it's the way we perceive things now. So as we develop more technology, and I guess the easiest reference right now would be, could you imagine if somebody tomorrow, for example, came up with the technology to map all the viruses in our body and what their potential harm could be to us. Even though like arguably we might've been living like this for thousands of years, but how, what we would do as a culture and the fear that would be brought into our world is saying like, there's all of these viruses and the potential for these viruses. And this is what could happen. Like those are the things that kind of worry me is if we develop this technology, should we even have it? Then like, yeah, but that's what's happening right now. I mean, that's I fueling the whole probiotic industry. If you look at it that way. Yeah. But this is what I mean though, right? Like, like, are we getting to a point where we should stop and understand what we know now better than to keep on trying to find new things to investigate because we just don't even have a, real good understanding of the things we already know. And the simplest form of that would just be as the discreditation of what we have for, you know, Eastern modalities and, you know, Eastern methodologies because of this Western influence. But now we're like, okay, maybe we shouldn't have, you know, completely discredited all this, you know, Eastern approach and all these teachings from the last, you know, thousands of years. Let's just understand that just where they left off. Let's just really understand that and then let's advance. But it's like now it's like, well, you know, Eastern teachings may have kind of ended here, but it's like, well, let's jump, you know, 20 miles down the road and try to pick up and get 2000 miles down the road from there. You know, because we just don't really know. Like I said, there's just so many things going on in our bodies. Like 
we we don't we don't have the capacity and do we even have the brain power to be able to understand all the information of what's lying with inside of just our own bodies and how much well look at what's happening with all the um interesting beliefs that have arisen in regard to covid yeah that answers that question right yeah (laughs) how much misinformation there is well, in people's that, minds, it's not necessarily even like they're getting snippets of what, you know, is, is the truth, but then there's thin and out and the, there's a lot of very interesting theories I've heard. And that's with anything, really. I mean, you can see people. Uh, and that's, I think that's also part of the reason why Eastern medicine hasn't been taken as seriously as it should be is because some of what has come down the pike to us as far as information goes, some of it's cultural stuff, some of it's cultural beliefs, some of it's superstition. And so when we hear something, you know, about Eastern medicine, that's more of a superstition instead of looking for maybe the grain of truth in it or why it's there, people have jumped to the conclusion that, oh, well, all of that is just nonsense because we didn't have, you know, modern science or modern medicine then. Do you think that everything should be explained? You know, it's a loaded question. Again, I, my mind wants to immediately say yes, because I'm curious and I like to know the answers. But it's almost like the more that I investigate, the more I come to the conclusion of being like, the more that we know, the more that we meddle. And just because we can meddle with it doesn't mean that what we're doing is good. And we right, usually, and we true. typically find out that it's actually not good at all. You know, like, sorry, you. I know I kind of jumped into answering. No, that's that okay. Stuff, but. I think that we know a lot. And we still are not, I mean, we know a lot and people still choose not to believe it. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that the world isn't flat, but there's still people who believe the world is flat. So in a sense, it may not even matter what mm-hmm. we know, you know, and, and that aspect of the human mind that is so willing to disregard truth or facts or information for belief, I think is part of the reason and habit is part of the reason that, you know, these great sages and teachers from, you know, all every part of the world, you know, some of the best ones don't have a website. They're not advertising that they're out there because they really don't want to deal with the majority of the people because they know that their mind is going to do whatever it is going to do, no matter what practice they do or, or what teaching they receive. And then it's just going to be wasted information and they don't want to actually be dealing with that aspect of humanity. They want to be teaching people that are truly willing to seek and get the truth and accept it. And so whether we have the truth and whether we don't, I mean, in, in that sense, I think that it really doesn't matter because only some people are going to utilize it anyway. Mm -hmm. See, and 
that brings me to something I regular regularly think all the time. And I hear a lot. Well, I guess I choose to hear lots of scientists say this because of the things that I choose to listen to and read is saying that when you're a scientist, you come up with this theory and then you find almost every possible conceivable way to prove that it's wrong. You know, and it, and you like, you're yeah. more interested. If you're a true scientist, you're more interested in proving it wrong than right. So you don't get buried in confirmation bias. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Do you think that we've always said, like, when we were developing a lot of these teaching, well, when TCM was just, you know, in very much in the present, you know, very, the, very much in the beginning, do you think they approached it like that? Like, let me figure out why this is wrong. Or do you think there was yeah. ever a point where, like, this is, this is right. Let's go with what feels right instead of spending on all the time of trying to prove why it's wrong. And is they were possibly doing assessment. I think that if they saw something work, they would analyze why, and then they'd have to try it in another person and see if it, like, if it's an herb or an herb formula. All right, well, why did this work for this person, but not for this person? They're always engaged in figuring out the truth of, of that scenario. Um, yeah. And, and charlatans have been talked about for thousands of years. It's in all kinds of literature. You know, that's always been there. And, and the true master you know, archetype has always been there as well. It's part of human nature. So yes, I think in developing these systems, people were very self-critical and very objective. And, you know, the stuff that's come down to us today in Ayurvedic science, in Chinese medicine science, has not gotten where it was without being time tested over and over and over and over again, because if something didn't work, it would not be kept. Because, you know, like in um, Imperial China, like you wouldn't wanna be the emperor's doctor and give him the wrong thing. You'd wanna know that this is gonna work for his body before you gave it to him, because you might not be there anymore <laughs> if you didn't. So there was a, big incentive to make sure you were good at what you did and that you were doing the right thing. And the same thing with population with the, I mean, they've had plague after plague. They've had, um, they've wanted to make sure that the population was able to come back after those things happened. So women's health, gynecology and obstetrics is a huge field in Chinese medicine. Mm. I actually, I've never, but like, that makes like a great point. Like if, if you don't take care of women, you know, after things like wars and plagues and famines, you know, like there really is going to be no repopulation of, of your species. And I don't even think that a lot of people even truly understand like how uh, big like obstetrics may be in TCMs. It's just, it's not something really that's ever talked about. Like you, you definitely have acupuncture. Now, maybe because of the Olympics, you know, three rounds ago, um, you know, cupping became very popular, mm -hmm. you know, like dry knees becoming a little bit more popular. Like you have all these things that are slowly becoming a little bit more popular, but um, I wonder why and maybe it has, and I'm just completely unaware of it, but it doesn't seem like obstetrics has, has really made this big 
thrust into like Western culture from a, a TCM, you know, perspective and narrative? Like, is it? And I'm just well, unaware. Yeah, because um, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a fertility clinic that did not have an acupuncturist on staff. Oh, really? See, I did that'd be something yep. I would be completely unaware of. Well, mainly I've never been to a fertility clinic before ever. And usually when people embark in fertility treatments, they're not really willing to be open to share their experience because it's something that's typically very hard for, you know, women and couples to go through. Mm-hmm. But like, what else would be there from a, a TCM perspective, like at a fertility clinic besides acupuncture? Is there anything is there like herbal formulas? Like what would they be doing when they're there? Um, they would just be doing the acupuncture right now because I think the herbs is still, are still a little too fringy and, Mm -hmm. and people are taking so many, you know, substances, you know, hormones and whatnot. Um, but in, in a Chinese medicine practice that specializes in fertility, definitely herbs are included. Definitely. And I've had firsthand experience of the of the amazing um, things that can happen as a result of taking herbs um, in the right herbs for the right person. Um, so yeah, the herb, herbology is a huge part and it's, it's female health in general. So a huge part of regulating the menstrual cycle. If someone's not getting their period, how to help it get that induced. Um, if somebody has dysmenorrhea or, um, or, uh, abdominal pain, like severe pain with their cycle, how to, how to deal with that. If someone has endometriosis, how to deal with that. Um, once a person is pregnant, if they're, um, they have severe morning sickness, acupuncture and herbs for that. If someone is, um, experiencing a threatened miscarriage and it's, and it's deemed to be kind of borderline herbs can, can help, um, so that that doesn't happen. I've had an experience a couple of times that, that I've given women herbs that were sent home from the hospital and told to, to just let it go. And they tried the herbs and both times the, the fetus stuck. So it depends on the situation. I'm not saying it's a cure-all for everything, but, um, in the right situation at the right time, um, labor induction. If somebody is, uh, if the baby's breech, let's start with that. There are things that an acupuncturist can do to turn the baby um, without using needles. Um, And if someone is expected to get induced, the acupuncture can help to induce labor. And some people actually have acupuncturists in the labor and delivery room with them to help facilitate the labor and birth process. Really? Mm-hmm. It just seems like, you know, just because I've been through that experience three times, uh, well, I have just been in the room <laughs> when this has happened. Um, I couldn't imagine bringing an acupuncturist into that room, just knowing what the environment's like when you're in a hospital and you know how anything outside of just this doctor walking in the last minute and kind of escape push push real hard you know like it just like our acceptance it seems like globally like across the board like out of anything that just breaks a standard western norm like every every time 
we discuss something like you just see this massive like roadblock how we just need to mm-hmm. be a little bit more you know like open into like the things that we can suggest because to me like the systemic problem here is there's no way that we don't carry this thought process into like every other aspect of our life like that's just really like how we live it and i see like it even trickling down like right to um you know like from an herb standpoint like when you talk about herbs most people just think like like oregano or you know like um some basil or something like we're just we're so uneducated on like what these things like actually even mean that is so easy it seems like to put up this huge fence like just close the door and not want to investigate it because there's there's just nothing that allows us to be able to to break through that freely because even if you're one of the people who wants to there's so much pushback you almost feel guilty for thinking that there's a potential other way you know because there's a lot of stuff that I've done like treatment wise where it's like what are you doing today nothing but you know like you know you went to go get some cupping done for example but then you know like you'll write like you're like well why do you do that it's so pointless it doesn't do anything anyway like that's the conversation that yeah. you're going to get into like with a lot of people where you know then people don't even want to talk about it because they don't want to have to get into this philosophical like wrestling match with people about like what might work and what doesn't um and i come back to the the thought process now continually all the time that if we can validate so much now that the placebo effect works why can't we validate that some other things that have a ton, like thousands of years of research, why can't we validate those? But like everybody can jump on board with like the placebo effect. And I don't like, it's just like, it's just our culture. And it like, it kind of flabbergasts me so much to think that's how stuck we are in our way of thinking. Well, and if you call the placebo effect the power of your mind, they wouldn't be able to digest that quite as easily either. It has to be called some scientific word that's been, you know, codified in some study. And, you know, the thing with herbs is that that's that's that exact thing that you said, like they think it's oregano or, or ginseng or whatever, because it that thinking makes it really difficult for me to help people understand how beneficial Chinese medicine can be when it comes to the herbology piece, because the formulas that are constructed, I can't, people want to know the ingredients. Would it, honestly, what are you going to do? Yeah. You're going to go look up the pinion or you're going to go look up Chinese herbs that haven't even been studied and it, it and, and they haven't been in study, it haven't been studied in relationship with one another and how they balance each other or may strengthen each other or may ameliorate some of the potentially negative effects if it's only taken by itself and not in tandem with this other herb. So there's no way to go into all of that. And like, when I start to explain to people, well, I'm not just going to give you one or two herbs. I'm going to give you a formula with like 18 herbs in it. It's like the glaze comes over, mm-hmm. you know, and they, and they're, and a lot of times they're like, oh, well, I'll just take, uh, just tell me what herbs are in it. And I'm like, I can't, I'll do it. Of course I do it. But I just know right then just to not even bother because 
unless they come back and say, okay, I don't, I don't understand this, but I'm willing to try it. I'm not going to like try to convince somebody of something they can't even begin to fathom, you know? Um, it's, it's hard. And then the flip side of that are people that don't want to do Western medicine, like at all, regardless of anything. And they feel as if herbs are the cure for everything. And that's, that's not good either, because that's not always the case as well, because there are certain disease processes and certain stages in a disease manifestation where, you know, the herbs might not be the, the course of action in that moment, the best course of action. So there needs to be like a balanced approach and, um, and yeah. And, and we have these preconceived notions about things mm -hmm. and we need to be willing to go beyond our belief or our preconceived notion of something. And that's exactly why like actually knowing the truth of whatever a thing is may not even be valuable because so many people will just put they'll just, the fog will just come over. Yeah. Know? And I notice a time when the fog comes over to, or well, actually maybe it's not necessarily a fog, but you can see how people um, perceive things. So like for one, if we kind of bring this to mushrooms, for example, and I know this as a direct correlation with herbs too, is, it's the name. So like for one, like if you just talk about like mm -hmm. an herbal remedy, to me, it's like talking to people about mushrooms. As soon as you say mushrooms, people are just like, oh, I don't want to die. And I'm like, well, it's sad that that's where we're at. You know, like that is just either you're going to die or you're going to get high and there's no other benefit to these things. <laughs> like, you know, like those are just like, dude. And, but then you're just like, well, have you ever heard of lion's mane? And you can see how people there's a lot of people who want to get more to like critiquing the name. Like they just get caught up in the name. Mm -hmm. You're just like, Oh, mm -hmm. like lion's mane or Turkey tail. And it's just like, mm -hmm. uh, then I start to think, I'm like, is there a detriment to these things having just these simple basic names? Cause they literally just look like what the name is for an easy reference. Instead of it mm -hmm. having this Latin word that it takes you like five references back and forth to type back out into I your know. Google search bar, you know, versus yeah. just remembering like turkey tail, you know, but it's yeah. like, you know, do you find that with like, you know, herbal remedies too, where it's like, do you think that some of the names that have been come up that or some of the names that these herbs have almost are like a hindrance to them themselves? Cause then people hear oh, like yeah. these kind of like, you know, really like, you know, witchy witchcraft kind of um you know, that's exactly contest. what it is you say yeah. chinese herbs and people immediately that's what happens yeah it, because i mean there's a lot of people that don't like china right now but that was the case before this all happened a year and a half ago so mm -hmm. i mean it means ridiculous but it's there and they're afraid they think anything coming from china is bad and that's not the case i'm not going to carry poisonous herbs <laughs> you it know is. in my pharmacy like it's ridiculous it is and i think a lot of people forget what you just said is that china's always had a bad taste in people's mouth like in like covid's exacerbated that mm -hmm. you know but like it was always like chinatown in a city was like this 
mysterious place CD. that you shouldn't go. Yeah. yeah you know, like, yeah. like oh, I bet it's you there's some. The Backstreet's in the yeah. Bruce Lee movie or something. <laughs> yeah, and they're just like, there must be rats hanging in the kitchen. Yeah. And cockfights in the basement and yeah, yeah you know like all this weird stuff you know that's it's not like, chicken it's cat in my yeah. movie guy pan <laughs> i know you know and it's just like and it actually happened out here in vancouver where there was this really really well-known chinese restaurant and this person on social media they took a picture of their kitchen and photoshopped like a rat hanging from like a hook so look and they're just like look you know, see evidence that, you know, Chinese restaurants cook right. And it was just this fake, but like it took a half a second for that business to fail. Like, let's just be yeah. like, you were yeah, yeah. never going to recover a restaurant after that, you know, and after it was widely known that this picture was just like falsified, you know, but there was just, that's the image. And like, those are things that, you know, we're me not only just in regards to like how people perceive like China, China or Chinese people and like the culture in general, but it's like how easy we want to dismiss things that we just don't know don't anything about. Yeah. You know, yeah. just because we're so uneducated and on the flip side of that is we're over indoctrinated with the information of the West. Like it's always, you know, been because of like America that, you know, like, um, you know, like the world has been prosperous and, you know, like, and if the United States doesn't have like this footprint everywhere, you know, like there's going to be like this global war thing going on in Canada, we get to like piggyback on that because we just happen to be right here. And, you know, like, like that's what the school experience really is like, you know, growing up out here where we can't even simply take indigenous culture in North America and say, you know, let's talk about the benefits of a sweat lodge. You know, like, let's actually talk about the experiences. Let's talk about how, you know, like this indigenous culture has the, an abundance of information of things that are literally in our own backyard that can save our lives day to day. But never mind if something happens, let's, let's talk about these things. But we can't even really teach people about that. But like what we really could teach is about like this massive segregation that has happened. And we see that not only in our own backyard with indigenous people here, but we see that with different cultures from all around the world, because we just don't educate and we over indoctrinate, you know, is that something that you see like in the United States? Like, do you feel that way from, you know, like how you've been brought to the things that you've seen in our education system? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. And you know, like, and it's, this is where it's like, I feel like it's our, our responsibility is like, not only like parents, you know, but just people participating in society being like, like, look, like, why would all of this stuff be here? Like all this stuff isn't just growing outside for just for show. It's not for aesthetics. Like this stuff yeah. has to be there for some reason. And all of this stuff harmoniously lives in nature without us. You know, like mm -hmm. we are the ones actually creating this systemic problem for everything out there. And if all of that stuff can live in harmony, there must be some kind of great exchange between it all or else it would, it would cease to exist, you know? And like, that's like with, with us, I feel like culture, if we were simply just all trees on this planet, 7 billion trees that can walk around with arms and legs, 
you know, like we have the ability to be able to work cohesively, like all the other trees on the planet, we can all grow together, but we just want to be like the, the dominant species of trees that is better than everybody else. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. this where it gets back to it's like it's great that we have this capacity to learn and think and grow and investigate and prove and disprove but it's like we see now this is the uprising that I love that's happening right now like I feel like a conscious reality a conscious connection people who are willing to take that step back out of all these environments and say there is something bigger going on here a lot of those voices are getting really loud now and there's getting to be a lot of them. And at no other point in my 38 years on this planet, have I seen more people willing to be like, huh, maybe there is something more to this than my house, my white picket fence, Mm -hmm. my two cars, my 2.5 kids and my dog, you know, and my vacation once a year, once a year, like maybe there's, there's something greater than that. Because there's all these other people starting to live really great lives and feel great who are choosing not to participate in that system anymore. Um, do you feel like the culture's really got some good, strong legs to it right now? I think that um, I think some people are thinking more along those lines now. Yeah. Um, I think, unfortunately, in the in the U.S., I feel like there's a lot of real backwards thinking too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, for as much of that changeful thinking, changeful thinking that you're talking about, there's an equally strong and resistant backwards thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that about every single one of those. Um, TV shows, uh, well, TV shows on TV that have to do with like cooking and eating and massive overeating and massive overindulgence. And it's like, to me, nutrition is kind of like the one thing that disconnects us from everything else. And the more people want to be the person that can eat like a four pound cheeseburger with eight patties and 15 strips of bacon Sunday, like, it's just like, (laughs) The more that becomes like this glorified narrative where it's just like food should be that. I feel like Mm -hmm. that's like always like the greatest disconnect because then how do you go out and appreciate a handful of salmon berries that took you 15 minutes to collect because they're just not in abundance, but they taste amazing. Like, how do you ever appreciate those kind of things? Or, you know, even the willingness to want to do it just doesn't have the same gratification level. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to have to wrap this up. It's going to be yeah. that time. I yeah. have like 15 other things on my list of uh, stuff that I want to talk about. Like if I went back and looked at all the times we didn't get through it all, there'd probably be a thousand things on an ever growing list because these things could be eight hours long and I'd still have a million questions. So uh-huh. um, I really appreciate it. I know that we've kind of been exchanging back and forth on social media, some comments, but I just I really am just a a thorough student of yours and I appreciate every second that I get with you and I appreciate it so much. Thank you for offering this time each month. I enjoy it. Well, have a great rest of your day and thank you and I'll see you in a month. All right, sounds good. 